Welcome, everyone, to the Talking Reef Podcast. Questions and comments are always welcome. Please send them to podcast at talkingreef.com. And don't forget to visit our website at www.talkingreef.com. Now, here's the show. Welcome to the Talking Reef Podcast, a weekly talk show that brings you topics and discussions on marine and reef aquariums. I'm your host, Rob Weatherly. As always, I have what I hope is a good show for you this week. Now, this is a show that's actually been in the works for, well, over a year. Um, it's not actually, I haven't been planning it and like literally working on it for a year, but the, the idea came around about a year ago and uh, I just finally got around to actually getting the content together and sitting down and writing it out because it's a rather technical show. So I needed uh, a lot of notes to, to keep my, my show organized here. So what we're going to be talking about in this show is RODI filters, what they are, how they work, and when and how you use them. Now RODI, which stands for reverse osmosis and deionization, is really the de facto standard in aquarium water filtration uh, and is what just about most serious hobbyists use at home. Now the problem is, is that while this is what most serious hobbyists use at home, most of these serious hobbies, hobbyists really don't fully understand what it is or how it works. They kind of have an idea or they think they know how it works, so on and so forth. Um, many do, many don't. So what we're going to do is we're going to be doing a two-part series here. Uh, the first part is this show right here. It's going to be an all-audio show. Uh, where I'm going to take you through uh, and discuss the ins and outs of RO and DI. Uh, we're going to break it up into the, the reverse osmosis section and the deionization section. And we'll talk a little bit about uh, the pre and post filter, so on and so forth. The second part is actually going to be a video show where I, uh, and this is actually part of the reasons why I waited, because I was waiting for the time to replace all the filters in my RO unit. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to take you through the process of changing all the filters. I'm going to show you what they all look like. Uh, where they're at, and uh, I'm going to tear apart a, an RO membrane and everything for you, a used one obviously, uh, so you can see what's inside. Now, for many experienced hobbyists, uh, it might not be you know totally interesting or exhilarating, but uh, I know there's a lot of new hobbyists out there or uh, seasoned hobbyists that have never seen this that might really be interested in, in uh, what's inside, and uh, I know that uh, uh, reverse osmosis in, in DI was a something that was a little bit challenging in the beginning when I first started out. So hopefully this uh, helps a lot of people out uh, when they're getting started and help understanding why you do need RODI and uh, what it's good for. So that being said, let's go ahead and, uh, and get started. So where do we start with this whole RO thing or the RODI thing? Well, let's start right at the beginning with RO. As I mentioned, RO stands for reverse osmosis. Now, reverse osmosis is done using a special type of filter referred to as a membrane. Now, out there, when you do some searching, you're going to find that there's two types of membranes uh, that, that you, you're going to come across. The first one is a CTA membrane. That stands for cellulose triacetate. And the second one that you're going to come across is the more common one, which is a TFC membrane or a thin film composite. Now, the real big difference between these two that you need to be concerned about is the first one, the CTA film, uh, the CTA membrane, has got an efficiency rating of about 90 to 95%. And the second one, which is the T TFC membrane, has got an efficiency rating up uh, more around 95 to 98%, much better. Now, the, the, the uh, TFC film is, is much more common for hobbyists to use 
and is what's almost always found in the filter units that are sold to hobbyists. Now, how exactly does this work? Now, what happens in an RO membrane and what allows it to work is the system takes in water and pushes it against this membrane at high pressures, well, relatively speaking. These pressures are usually accepted to be about 45 to 60 PSI. Now, the water comes in, uh, in through the, the membrane and through an inner tube, and at this high pressures, it, it's pressed up against this membrane. Now, as it goes through this, uh, the, the water is going to be basically, as I, as I said, it's going to be pressed up against the membrane. Um, all of the impurities are going to get held in, into the membrane or they're going to be prevented from moving through the membrane. Uh, the excess is going to be sent off as wastewater, and what gets through is going to be your highly purified water. Now, um, it's very helpful to have a pressure gauge and in the, in the incoming water source so you can see where it's at. Uh, like I said, 45 to 60 PSI is where you want to be around. Uh, it, usually, the higher the pressure, the more wastewater you're going to have, uh, and uh, the more pure the water is going to be, the better the filtration rate is going to be. Um, you know, as I, as I said, the higher pressure, you're going to have what they call it as a rejection rate. So the, the excess water, the wastewater, you're going to have um, more of that getting shot out the other side. So the film in this RO membrane is really, um, if you can imagine a, a screen, like a screen on your screen door or something like that, only shrunk down to really, really, really teeny tiny, like microscopic size holes in there. And then you take that screen and you wrap it around itself hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. And uh, again, when we get into the video show, you'll see exactly what it looks like. Um, but this is essentially what it looks like inside uh, at this point, or you know, on the outside layers of this. And the water is just squeezed through there really tightly. And that's, that's how all of the impurities are, are, are kept out of there and only the pure water passes through. Now... Um, the one thing that's important that a lot of new people with RO membranes don't uh, get a good concept of is the production rates uh, on, on your unit. When you go to the store, you look online and you're looking at RO filters, um, they're all, they all have this rating, uh, a, GP, uh, a GPD rating, which is, stands for gallons per day. And you'll you commonly see 50, 75, 100, or 200 gallon per day uh, units and this is usually referring to the amount of water that can be processed by the membrane. Now the key word here is being processed. If you go to the store and you pick up a hundred gallon per day RODI filter, it is not going to produce a hundred gallons of water per day. It is going to process a hundred gallons of water per day. Now this is one of the downsides, which we're going to talk about a little bit later, uh, is that these do produce a lot of wasted water. Now, for that 100, 100 gallons, you're going to get about 20 gallons of good water on a good day. And that's saying that everything is working good. So it's definitely something to keep in mind. Um, now, the real difference between a 75 or a 50 or a 100 or a 200, you know, I, I really struggled. And I did take a minute and I looked around. And I couldn't find anything concrete that was showing that there's a definite advantage from one to the other. However, I have heard people uh, rumor, um, speculation, and in non-proven evidence saying that the lower the rating, the better the output of the water. Most common is going to be 75 to 100. Um, the one that I personally use is 100 gallons per day. And as you're going to see as we go through uh, the rest of this discussion, whether you're, going to, whether you're coming out at 97, 98, or 99% purity, it really isn't going to matter. Because uh, what I did find is it said, well, the 75 gallon per days are going to give you 90 
99.1 versus a hundred gallons per day, which is going to give you like 98%. You know, the difference is, is real minimal from that aspect. Uh, but as you're going to see uh, in a minute, it doesn't, it's not really, it's not that big of a deal. Um, but that's really the big difference there. And it's important for everybody to understand that it's gallons per day of being processed water, not actual production of filtered water. The next thing that I want to talk about regarding the RODI filter units themselves are the actual pre-filters that are involved in that are in, in these systems. Now, it's important to, to talk about these uh, because the pre-filters are used for many reasons. The main reasons why these are used is to actually extend the life of the RO membranes and the DI resin. Uh, and this is done by reducing the processing needs. Um, now, some of the common filters, I'm, well, I'm going to go through some of the common filters. And we'll explain how each one works. Now, the first one that you usually find, and this is the first filter that the water goes through, uh, sometimes called the first stage. And these are usually referred to as sedimentary filters. These are usually coarse, 5 micron or larger filters that are used to catch the largest of materials. Um, dirt, free detritus, and any other particulate matter that's in the water that's, that's relatively large. Now, as you can imagine, these things do get fairly clogged up. And they collect a lot of junk, but uh, it's important uh, to collect that. Now, a lot of stuff is going to get through that, uh, and there's there's a good reason for it. If we stuck a one micron filter in the very beginning of this, it's going to catch everything, and it's going to clog up really fast. So what they do is they stage it out a little bit. The first one is a is a large sedimentary filter, uh, and the second one is actually a micron filter, and this is usually... Um, a one micron filter, uh, and it's and it's really used to gather everything that's missed by the first stage, uh, and then this is going to really you know obviously catch everything that's one micron or larger, which really is going to grab a lot of stuff. This alone is very very high level of filtration, um, but uh, obviously since we're only at stage two, it doesn't stop there. The next stage, which which is commonly found, is a GAC uh, filter, and this stands for granular activated carbon. Granular activated carbon, or carbon for short, is something that's probably familiar to most of you hobbyists out there. And if you're a new hobbyist, it's something that you should probably look into. Uh, it's definitely something that uh, is, is great for filtration both in our tanks and for our water. Uh, and the main thing is that this is uh, like the other two. Well, the other two are a type of mechanical filtration. Uh, basically, they have a filter with a certain size hole, and they don't allow anything to pass through it that is larger than that hole. Uh, carbon, on the other hand, is not a mechanical filtration. It's a type of chemical filtration. And, and uh, simply put, what it does is it works to neutralize various types of chemicals uh, and that, that are found in there, large organics and even some heavy metals. It can actually work to filter out of there by binding it into the carbon itself. Now, one of the chemicals that I did want to point out that's of specific interest is chlorine. Chlorine is something that will cause uh, premature deterioration of your RO membrane. So it's very important that chlorine that as much chlorine is filtered out as possible before it gets to the RO membrane. Chlorine obviously is not the only thing worth noting, but uh, as hobbyists, uh, you know, carbon's a great thing. We know it's a chemical neutralizer. We know it does great things for filtration. And this is usually stage three in our RODI filters. So at this point, what we have is we've got stage one and stage two, which are type of mechanical filtration, stage three, which is our first type of chemical filtration, and then we usually get around to our RO membrane, which, as I mentioned, is, is essentially what you're doing is you're taking that dirty, nasty water. Well, at this point, it's relatively clean water, but still fairly dirty, and you're going to squeeze it really tight through this RO membrane, uh, and what's going to pop outside is mostly the clean water. 
And again, this is all done by the RO membrane. And this is where a lot of the um, major filtration is going to take place. As I mentioned, the, the early pre-filter stages, they do, a, they do do a good job filtering out a lot of stuff, but the RO is where a lot of, this t- a lot of the real good filtration takes place. Now, as I did note in the beginning, the TFC membrane is going to remove about 95 to 98% of all the remaining contaminants in the water. The, remain, the, the stuff that's left after this 98, you know, so this, this five, 2 to 5% that's left after that are going to be handled by the DI stage. But before we get there, uh, there's some things that I wanted to, to talk about uh, that are actually, well, things that I want to mention that are going to be removed at this stage. So the water that's coming out of here is it should be fairly clear of stuff like your calcium buildup, uh, which is a cause of hard water, uh, copper, boron, aluminum, arsenic, mercury, fluoride, lead, cyanide, cobalt, uh, and nickel are just to name a few. I mean, obviously, you can go online and you can see a list of things, just huge lists of stuff that can actually be removed by RO. What's even more interesting is to get a hold of your city or go down to wherever your public buildings are that have this type of information. They mail them to us and get a report, a water report on your city water. Of course, if you, you know, if this is, as long as it's applicable to you. And you will be amazed at the stuff that is found in your tap water and how they have acceptable levels of arsenic. <laughs> you know, and that, that's, that kind of scares me. So. Um, it's really good that we actually go through this because there's a lot of stuff in the tank in, in tap water that's that's pretty nasty. Now, all that being said, and as great as an RO membrane is, there are some things that can actually make it through. Uh, and this being some types of bacteria, uh, pesticides can make it through, methyl mercury, radon, sulfide. Uh, and then there's things that are th- those can all make it through. Now, there's other things that if they're in real high concentrations can also make it through your membrane. And now, this is stuff like aluminum, calcium, silica, uh, and chlorine. So, if the source water has large amounts of this stuff, then that then that can make it through. Obviously, if you have real hard water, you're probably going to have lots of cal- uh, calcium buildup, cal- calcium deposits in there. A lot of this stuff can make it through. So, um. So what this all really means is that your pre-filters and your RO membranes are great filters. However, they are not perfect and they are not 100% effective. The RO itself uh, and you know reverse osmosis filtration is often touted as the be-all, end-all of water filtration. However, um, when you really look at it, you'll find out that all of this up until this point, this is all just pre-filtration. These are all types of pre-filters when you really look at the next stage. And that's, you know, they're all working in preparation for this next and final, usually this final stage, um, which is in comparison, far, far more effective. And this is the deionization phase or stage. Uh, so with that being said, let's take a minute and discuss exactly how deionization works and why it is Uh, as good as I'm kind of saying it is. So uh, deionization, this really is the next bait. Now, I want to mention, first of all, that this section is going to be uh, a rather technical section. Uh, What we've talked about up until this point has all been mechanical filtration, and most people are fairly, uh, you know, familiar with with carbon in in general. So um, in this section, I'm going to take a few minutes and I'm going to actually break down in detail how deionization works. Uh, So if everybody could bear with me, uh, I'm going to 
I'm going to work through this uh, and, and, and do what I can to make it interesting for you. But uh, at the end of the day, I think it's really important that everybody understands this stuff and how it works so you can really understand what, you know, what you're working with and how to use your equipment properly. So that being said, let's break into the technical stuff. Now, first off, geek warning here, physics alert, chemistry alert. We're going to get into some, some pretty technical stuff here. Now, uh, in this section, there's going to be a series of terms that are going to be used. Uh, and the first thing I want to do is, is introduce you to these terms. And uh, I'll try to refresh this as I go through these various topics. The first thing that I want to mention here is an ion, and I'm not talking about the car. Uh, an ion is an atom or molecule which has lost or gained one or more electron, making it negatively or positively charged. Ions are then broken into two different categories. We have anions, which are uh, negatively charged ions, and what this means is that they have um, more electrons in the electron shell than it has nu- uh, protons in the nuclei. Uh, so generally speaking, uh, a neutral uh, particle is going to have an equal number of protons and electrons. Uh, when you have more electrons, you have an anion. The next one is cations. And this is when you have a positively charged ion. And this is the exact opposite, where you have fewer electrons than protons in the nuclei. Or in other words, you have more positively charged protons in the nuclei than you have electrons in the electron shell. So those are where are the sections of, of the molecules. You have your ions, which is a general classification. You have your anions and your cations. Now the next thing is hydrogen. Most of you are pretty familiar with hydrogen. It's pretty much, well, it's the simplest element, the lightest element on there, consisting of a single proton and a single electron. The next thing on here is a hydroxyl. This refers to a type of uh, molecule of hydrogen and oxygen with a covalent bond. Now, What's a covalent bond? This is a bond where the two atoms or multiple atoms or molecules are actually sharing an electron between them. So instead of each one having their own set, you'll have a series of electrons that are actually shared by multiples. Uh, Now, obviously, this is some technical stuff, so I'm going to stop right here with fear of boring everybody to death. But what does all this have to do with your DI filter? So, okay, let's take it back a notch and let's start breaking this down and helping you understand what is all happening here. Now, as we mentioned, DI stands for deionization, and in some groups, uh, it's also referred to as demineralization through ionization. These terms, in this case, can be used interchangeably. There are minute differences, but they're not relevant here, so let's not worry about those. So let's move into your DI filter, um, or your DI stage. In this stage of the filter system, um, what we have is a type of resin in there. Now, while this can be broken into two separate stages. In the hobbyist filters, it's very common to find the DI stage is one stage. Now, this stage consists of cation and anion resin, all combined into the single stage. As noted earlier, cations are positively charged ions, and anions are negatively charged ions. So your DI stage in your hobbyist-type filter system is going to consist of a cation and anion resin, Uh, And that's what is going to be in there. Now, how does this all work? Okay, so here's what happens. And this is technically what's going to happen. The water is going to pass through here. And the ions that are present in that water, after going through the pre-filters and the RO membrane, whatever stuff is left in there, those ions are going to fix themselves to this resin, also known as an exchange material, as noted. Um, And you'll see why it's called an exchange material. 
Now, what happens is when these ions affix themselves to the resin, the re resin is going to release uh, a hydrogen ion into something chemically equal. Now, for example, uh, a sodium ion comes in, it affixes itself to the resin, the resin absorbs it, and the re resin is going to release a hydrogen ion. A calcium ion is taken in, and it's going to be replaced with two hydrogen ions. A ferric ion is going to come in, and it's replaced with three hydrogen ions, so on and so forth. Now, as you do, if you wanted to go out and do some research, you can you'll understand exactly how this is. But the way that the chem the, the chemicals are built, it makes a little bit more sense on how you know that okay, a calcium ion is going to come in, and that's going to you know cause the release of two hydrogen ions versus one or five or twenty for that matter. Um, you know. So that being said, so what happens is you know. As stuff comes in, the, the materials in those ions are, are, are absorbed and they're displaced by an equivalent amount of something else. Now, what that something else is, is depending on what is being taken up. Positive anions are exchanged with hydrogen and negative cations are exchanged with hydroxyl, which we explained earlier. Now, the key thing to understand here is that this DI resin is absorbing all of these various types of, of chemicals and elements, calcium and hydrogen and, and everything else, is, or calcium and, and sodium and the other things that we've mentioned here, are being absorbed in. And what's being kicked out? Hydrogen or hydrogen and oxygen. Not in an H2O form, but they can be later. So basically, this is the stuff that's being released. Now, deionization or deionized water uh, is one of the highest forms of purified water and is often compared or equated to distilled water. Both are pure enough for scientific experiments and you're considered to be pure enough for our tanks. Well, I really hope they are. <laughs> That's what we're using. And if they're good enough for scientific experiments, then I'm sure they're good enough for our tanks. So deionization pro um, produces such pure water. Why would we mess with the rest of this stuff? You know, you know, it's like okay, so deionization is so efficient. You know, what? Why? Why not just set up a big DI filter and just call it a day? The best way that I can put it is that all of the other stuff up until this point can be considered a type of pre-filter. Deionization is very, very effective, but with only DI, with only your DI stage, you'd use up that DI resin in no time. So what we try to do is remove as many things as possible. Uh, as you know, financially possible um, before we get to the DI stage, and then we use the DI stage as kind of a cleanup. And this is where we get back to where I said earlier that your your RO membrane is going to remove ninety five to ninety eight percent. You know, and many people are going to think, well, heck, that's pretty darn good. Why, you know, why continue on or or you know whatever? But the DI stage is often considered to be a cleanup stage, and instead. Uh, well, instead of being used as a primary filter. Um, but because of this, some people don't really consider DI to be important enough. Uh, and some lower-end filters are even sold without a DI stage on it at all. So should you get a DI instead of an RO? Should you use just deionization instead of reverse osmosis? The answer is no. I mean, RO alone uh, is not going to give you as pure water, but... Um, the media will is going to last you a heck of a lot longer. If you only ran DI media um, or only ran a DI filter, 
your media replacement costs would be just through the roof and it would not be an effective means of, of filtration. So what we're doing here is we're building up all of these various types of filtration, these various chemical and mechanical filtrations. And in concert together, you're going to have a low cost, highly purified water. And you're going to, you know, again, keep your costs low, keep your, you know, consumables low, and it's and it's going to give you very good results. One common question that comes up is, should I use more than one DI filter? And while the simple answer is no, you don't need to, um, there are some reasons why, might, might, uh, why you might want to consider it. Um, if the source water is high in silicas, for example, as you may have remembered, I, something we mentioned just a little bit ago, silica is something that can break through your RO membrane. Uh, if the concentration levels are high enough, they can they can slip through. Um, and in this case, they're going to need to be handled by the DI stage, or they will be handled by the DI stage. But in the DI stage, some contaminants uh, that are captured or taken in by the DI resin uh, can actually break through that resin long before the media uh, has expired or should be replaced. Silica is a classic example of this. Now, what happens is, uh, when you're working through this exchange process, uh, as, as I noted, what happens is these certain ions are absorbed by the resin and something else is released, and they're bonded to this resin. Now, silica is one of these that forms a very loose bond with the resin uh, initially in the exchange process, uh, which we discussed earlier. And what can happen is it can be replaced by stronger binding materials like carbonates uh, as you continue using the resin. So what can happen is if you use two DI units in tandem, uh, this can help reduce or eliminate this problem. As the silicas that are taken up by the first DI filter or the first DI stage, uh, you know, as stuff comes through and as these silicas break through this first stage, uh, it'll be caught by the second stage. And since those stronger binding carbonates uh, are going to be held in the first stage, they're not going to be present to break the silica free again in the second stage. So what we're what we're saying here, and I guess to break it down into more simple terms here, is the silica is going to come through, and if it does, if there is high contents of silica in your water, uh, they may not they make it they may make it through all of your your filtration stages. And while the DI deionization process itself can eliminate it, the process in which it performs this type of filtration, this, this deionization or using this exchange material, it creates a weak bond. So it's not holding on to these silica uh, ions very tightly. And these, these big old bicarbonate or carbonate ions come through and just whack it right back out of there. And they kind of replace it. Uh, now, normally the ions are replaced by, you know, they're taken up and then, you know, the, the hydroxyl or hydrogen ions are then released. And this isn't the type of replacement we're talking about here. What happens is, you know, the thing instead of the car coming into the the parking garage and finding an open spot, it's actually going to kick out your little car and take its spot. So what's going to happen is this, these these uh, silica ions are going to come in and they're they're going to they're going to just nicely float around in this little spot. But this larger bicarbonate atom is going to or ion is going to come in and knock it out of its place, and well, instead of you know having your hydrogen or hydroxyl ions being passed back out, you also now have those original silica ions being passed out also. So what's happening is you're not going to be effectively filtering these silica ions out of the water. 
Now, what you can do, as I mentioned, is you, you put the second stage in there, and that will really help to grab anything that, that's being passed on. So, in short, many people will blindly state, oh, second stage is, is absolutely worthless. Uh, and this is, this is not true. Um, it, there's, it's just not true. Uh, now, in most cases, for most of you out there, um, you don't need one. Um, but as noted, there are you know a few reasons why you might want to investigate using one. Um, there's other things like uh, if you don't change your resin as often, or if you have for some reason uh, you're going through resin very fast, you can add in a second stage to help it, so you don't have to change it as often. Now, you know the these latter reasons might be you know, debatable or whatever. But uh, if you're lax in doing maintenance, and it's something that you can definitely consider to put in there. Now, is this right for everybody? No. As I mentioned, most people are not going to need two stages. So for most people, you know, it, it might not be worth it. However, um, there are some cases where you might want to investigate adding it on. Now, the key here is to, is you know, as I've been preaching this whole thing, is understanding. Make sure you understand how your filter works, as we just described. Understand your source water and what you're dealing with. Put all that information together. Come up with the best decision for your situation. If your water is high in silica, then you might want to look at adding the second filter. If it's not, and you've got pretty decent water, then you probably don't need to worry about this. Uh, but uh, again, these blanket statements that you just don't need it may not necessarily be true. But one of the next things that comes up is how pure is your water? How do you check it? How do you monitor it? How do you keep an eye on it? Now, so you got your water filter and you want to know how pure the how how well it's working and how pure the water is. Now, the common way to determine this is is measuring what's referred to as the TDS. And it's measured using a TDS meter. Well, first off, what is TDS? TDS stands for Total Dissolved Solids. And simply put, it's, it, it consists of a measure of all of the organic and inorganic molecules that are present in the water. The measure of TDS is only applicable to fresh water. You cannot m accurately measure the purity of salt water using TDS since the presence of various salts and other chemicals and elements uh, minerals in uh, the salt mixes that we add contribute to the overall TDS, and you'll not be able to tell you know the overall purity. Um, you're going to go ahead and you're going to measure it, and you're going to get a reading that's very very high. However, you might have fresh RODI water with just your your synthetic sea salt mix in there, which gen generally speaking is going to be very pure water or very clean water, uh, but it's going to have a very high TDS. So again. Just to stress, a TDS meter should only be used with fresh water, and it should be used with your fresh water source. And it should never be used to measure the tank water or mixed up salt water. I mean, you can do it, but the reading is going to be irrelevant. It doesn't matter because it's not accurate. So how does a TDS meter work? Um, a common TDS uh, meter that's used by hobbyists is, is it's used by measuring the water's electrical connectivity or conductivity. This is done, you know, again, using a TDS meter. The ends of a TDS meter, if you've ever looked at it, consists of two small probes. Electricity is sent down the one probe, and the resistance, or lack thereof, is then measured uh, up the other probe. So the electricity is shot across, and it measures the resistance. Uh, of the water. Since DI water is so pure, it should have a very high conductivity. Um, 
you know, basically it's going to absorb little to none of the electricity. It's going to conduct that electricity very well, right straight across. The more dissolved solids that are in that water, uh, the more of the electricity is going to be absorbed and the meter is going to indicate there is a higher amount of dissolved solids present in that water, meaning that the water is less pure. So what is the right tool for you? There are two common types of meters in the hobby that are used. There's handheld TDS meters and there's inline TDS meters. So first of all, let's discuss the handheld TDS meters. As the name suggests, these are portable um, meters that can be carried around with you and can go wherever you need them to go. They're very um, good for handling, measuring water that you've stored in buckets or containers before you want to use it. They usually run on a battery. Um, well, I think both of them are going to run on batteries. Uh, they're portable. They can be traded. You can let friends borrow them. They're real nice. They're real easy to use. However, generally speaking, not always, but generally speaking, I've found that the handheld TDS meters tend to read slightly higher than an inline TDS meter. Now, there's various reasons behind that, and I'll talk about that in just a minute. Uh, the next one are inline TDS meters. Now, what these are is essentially the same thing, but you have a readout, and then you have these remote probes. And what happens is you take your, your water line, say going into your RO unit or your RODI system, you cut it, and you put this probe in there, and you and you and then you it's like a, a probe, then you stick the water lines back on each end of it. Uh, so what happens is this probe is is analyzing the water as it goes into your system. And then what people will do is they'll take uh, and cut the outbound side of the water line and stick another probe in there. Very easy to do. I, it, may, it might sound like a big deal. It's really not. It's very simple. And then the water is measured on the in and out. And then what you can see is you can measure the the source water and the out, you know, and then the output of the unit, and you can get a determination of how effectively your filter is using or working. What you'll see is you have an inbound of like a hundred, a TDS reading of one hundred and fifty, and then you should have zero spitting out of your TDS meter, you know, or out of the output as read by the TDS meter. Now, um, you know, as I was mentioning, the handheld meters tend to uh, work, it tend to read a little bit higher. Now, what the reason I think this is, however, this is just my opinion and not backed by anything, but generally saying the, the inline TDS meters are measuring the water out of your unit right when they come out. The handheld TDS meters are measuring the water after they've been exposed to air and have been stored in a storage container. And as we're going to get to in a minute, uh, or in a couple minutes, it, that that water is, is subject to various types of um, leaching or osmosis of various elements back into the water. So if you both are good solutions, an inline solution is more permanent, and uh, but depending on the circumstances, it may or may not give you a more accurate reading. Now, regarding the inline TDS meters, there's a couple different ways that people like to set them up. Now, how you set this up is totally up to you. Um, almost all the time you have your out reading on the final output of the water because you want to know how good it is. Now, what does vary is where people decide to put the inline meter. Some people will put it right before the RO. Some people will put it right after the RO. And what you can do there is you can then read the TDS of the water coming out of the RO before it goes into the DI, and then you can read the water after the DI. Uh, this can help determine the effectiveness of your RO filter and determine how much your DI filter is actually doing. It is possible to 
move this thing around and put it in multiple different places. There are butt connectors that you can get. And you can separate your hoses in various different spots. And then when you want to move it, you use these little butt connectors and you stick your hoses back together. Not really a big deal. And when we get to the section on leaching or osmosis, you're going to understand why more that uh, the inline meters or the handheld meters are going to give a little bit of a different reading. So back to the RODI unit itself. One of the largest downsides to an RO unit or to RO in general is the wastewater. So what can you do with all this wastewater? You know, we just talked about that earlier. There's a lot of water that's left over after going through your RO unit. Now, many people have been known to capture this water and use the wastewater in in various different ways. One common way is using them in freshwater tanks with hard water loving fish, um, like some type of cichlids. You can also capture this water and, and use it in your garden. It's a very mineral rich water, um, rich in nitrates and, and various other elements that are really not desired in our aquariums, but that plants and and stuff growing in your garden are really going to like, uh, are really going to suck up. So that's a very, very common use. Uh, some other people have been known to use it for washing clothes, you know, sticking, you know, having your wastewater line go right into uh, your your washing machine. Although, because of the hardness of the water, I, I might not recommend this because you're going to have a, uh, essentially you have to keep in mind that what's happening is you're, the pure water is being sucked out and you now have essentially the super concentrated, uh, everything that was in your water to begin with, you now have a super concentrated amount of it. Um, you know, mo- it's, it's, it's really fairly clean. I mean, most of the big stuff has been removed by your, your three stages of pre-filters. Uh, your carbon, your sedimentary filter, and your micron filter. So all the big particulates are out. But you're going to have high volumes of, of calcium and stuff like that. Calcium is be the thing that I worry about the most, uh, which is going to increase the hardness of the water. And what this can do is it can leave unwanted residues on the clothes. You might or might not notice this. But the other thing that I'd be worried about, especially when dealing with warmer waters, or these moving components, just like a lot of us see in our tanks, calcium tends to build up these deposits. And the last thing you're going to want is to have these deposits being built up inside your washing machine. Uh, so personally, I would recommend you know paying attention to where you use that from. I don't know if I'd use it for clothing. You can. That's up to you. Um, but uh, consider yourself warned. Uh, but in the garden, is probably a really, really good use for it. Now, that being said, I know some people are going to come back to me and say, but what about these these wasteless RO filters? And yes, there are some types of RO uh, units out there that are that are wasteless, um, and they're, they're referred to as zero-waste RO systems, and they are out there. Um, there are I've seen some reports of them being used successfully. Uh, I don't have any firsthand experience, so I'm not going to... Uh, talk about them a whole lot, but uh, if you are interested in them, one of the the common ones that I've seen is actually sold uh, sold by Costco online through their website. It's about three hundred dollars. Uh, you can go to uh, the Costco.com and you can just search for you know RO system and you'll see it in there. It's a zero waste RO system. Uh, like I said, they're about three hundred dollars. If you want to check it out and send us a review and let us know how it does for you, that's awesome. I just haven't I haven't used one, so I can't speak a whole lot to it and. Um, I didn't want to drag out the show any longer, giving an in-depth analysis of how they work and stuff like that. So if you're interested, go for it. Send us your feedback. We'll leave it at that. Now, one of the things that comes up with RODI water 
uh, and it sometimes uses a negative of RODI water, is that all of the benefit uh, beneficial chemicals and minerals have been stripped out of the water. A lot of people will say that, you know, you're removing all of the calcium that's needed and all of the, you know, other good things that are needed in the water. Well, this is absolutely correct, and it's known, and it should be accounted for. While it's true that RODI units are going to strip out 99.8% of everything that's in the water, or whatever the number is, um, the stuff that they're removing, the, the it's one of those situations where I think the, the benefits outweigh by far the negatives. So yes, you are going to be stripping out small amounts of iodine and calcium and other things that you might need in your system, manganese and magnesium, so on and so forth. This is stuff that is beneficial to your system. However, as you remember from the list of stuff that I, I read off earlier, aluminum and boron and argon and calcium, uh, you know, various other things that uh, arsenic and other, all this other stuff that I mentioned, um, you know, as you can see, I would much rather have everything removed, including those bad things, than try to risk it with those bad things in there. So that being said, it's really easy to work around this. What we do, we adjust for it. 90% of the synthetic sea salt mixes that are out there on the market today that are meant for you know, reef tanks are going to be special, specially formulated for use with RODI water. What this means is they're not go, they're the salt mix itself is going to expect that it's going to be mixed with pure water, not with tap water that has certain amounts of elements in it. So it's going to have higher amounts of calcium and iodine and magnesium and um, sodium bicarbonate and all this stuff that's that's needed for your system it's going to have this stuff in it already so when you mix up your salt you're going to be adjusting for it and at the end of the day you're covered the only thing to keep in mind is that you need to make sure that you keep up on your on your uh, water changes because your top off water is going to be this super pure reverse osmosis deionized water so you're not going to be adding these elements back in because they're in your salt mix and as we all know we top off with fresh water and we don't use salt mixes in our top off water so uh, again it's a good thing to keep up on your your water changes and this gets into a situation where you're not doing water changes because you want to make sure your water's clean you're doing water changes because you want to make sure that you're replenishing the needed major and minor trace elements in your system um, but again, that's a side note and that's for a different discussion there. So one of the next questions that comes up is regarding maintenance. When or how often should you change the filters? Now it's commonly accepted that you can change them about once a year, uh, and you should go through and rip out all your filters and change them all out. Now, a more specific recommendation I give, um, is that you should change them when you're your TDS readings raise five points above the rate of when they were new, or if they get above 10, whichever comes first. It's commonly accepted that a TDS rating of anything under 10 is acceptable. Uh, So if you're getting a reading of five or six or zero, any of those are good. So if you start off with a TDS rating of two, you got all new filters, you're at two. When you get to seven, replace your filters. If you start off at a TDS rating of 7, when you get to 10, even though it's not 5 points, I would recommend changing it at 10. So again, replace when it increases by 5 points, or when you get to 10, whichever comes first. Kind of like your 3 months, 3,000 miles. So um, that's my recommendation there. Use it as you will. Um, that's, that's what I've been working with with good success.
Now, the last thing that I wanted to mention uh, is leaching. And this is something that we talked about earlier when comparing the handheld and the inline TDS meters. One common problem that does arise with the use of storing RODI water is that because it is so pure, it's very susceptible to leaching via osmosis. Now, we clean the water using reverse osmosis, and the water can then become contaminated again using regular osmosis. Uh, basically, chemicals in the linings of the storage containers and in the air itself uh, will it, will be attached to the water. They're going to be drawn to the water in order to create this balance. Um, many of you may remember back from you know high school science classes that uh, various chemicals like to there, there's a natural desire for them or need for them to 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 reach an equilibrium for them to balance out. So if you mix something that's got a high concentration of something on one side and a low concentration of something on the other side through a process. Of, through this process of equilibrium or equalizing, they're going to balance each other out. So what's going to happen is the the they can suck in these materials from the air, literally. Now, this is this process is is more accurately referred to as, as osmosis versus leaching, um, but we're not really going to get into to that. So, really, what you what you want to understand here is that. When I mentioned earlier that the handheld meters tend to be to give a little higher reading, and some people will say they're a little bit less accurate, this is the thing that you want to remember, and this is why. When you take that water out of your, your filter and you put it into your storage containers, what's going to happen is the process of being moved through the air and being poured into these containers, it's going to allow a lot of oxygen mixture, and the osmosis or the, the leaching of a lot of different stuff is going to come from the air and from the storage containers. So what's going to happen is the TDS reading on your water is going to be slightly higher. Does this mean that the that the TDS meter is more or less accurate? No. It's meaning that your water is slightly more contaminating contaminated in your storage container than it is in uh right in the inline out the output line of your filter. This is obvious, this is accepted and again, it's not that big of a deal. You know, let's keep things in perspective here. The the in water going into your filter could have a TDS reading of anywhere from 75 to 300. What you're talking about here is usually a difference between 1 and 3. You know, it's not that big of a deal. Uh, so keep an eye on it. Again, anything under 10, you're fine. The reality is, is even it could get probably get higher than 10 and you're still a lot better off than using tap water. But um, this is hopefully it'll give you a little bit of an understanding on why we think that the TDS meter, the handheld TDS meters, are giving a little bit higher reading than the inline meters. Now, all of that being said, how can you reduce the amount of of leaching that occurs? Well, generally speaking, what you want to do is you want to store your water in a good, high quality, food grade container. Now, food grade or food safe containers are built to a much higher quality. The elements and the components and everything that make up the linings of these containers are going to be designed so that they are they cannot be leached from that and they cannot come out of it. Um, the reason is is you know if you're storing food in a plastic container, you don't want the the components that make up the plastic lining of the of the container to to be absorbed into your food so you can eat it. You know it's not something that's good. So if you use these same food safe containers to store your RODI water, then you're going to reduce the amount of leaching that can occur. 
Um, another good thing I have found, and many people use, uh, for us that have larger tanks that buy our salt in five-gallon buckets, those salt buckets are really good for storing our ODI water in. So a couple different options for you. So all that being said, I hope I didn't dump too much information. I hope this was a helpful show. Um, we're at you know 45 minutes now, so I'm going to go ahead and wrap these things up. Uh, if you have any questions or comments regarding reverse osmosis, deionization, water filtration, distilled water, so on and so forth, um, by all means, make sure you, you head over to TalkingReef.com, post your questions and comments in response to this thread, and uh, we'll hopefully we'll, we'll get them answered for you. Stay tuned. In the next week or two, I'm going to have the video that's going to accompany this. Uh, it's going to be a, It should be a sh- relatively short video, but I'm going to show you all the different types of filters Uh, And I'm going to break down my unit so you can see exactly how they fit in. So that being said, I want to thank you all for sticking with me. I hope you did learn something. And that's going to wrap it up this week for the Talking Reef podcast. I will talk to you all next time.